this morning. Our text today is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verses 1 through 7. As we have seen over and over again throughout this book, 1 Peter is a pastoral letter that is written from the Apostle Peter to many Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is the area we would call Turkey today in that area. It is a book of pastoral care and instruction written, reminding us of our new life in Christ and our eternal inheritance we have in Him. Peter's purpose, as we see even in chapter 1, is to fix our minds and to fix in our minds that if we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and, fade, un, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If all of that is true, as Peter has said, then that is to have a life-changing effect on us right here and right now. If we are in Christ, and we have been born again by God's grace, then we are to live accordingly. So building on that gospel foundation, Peter goes on in chapter 1 to call all Christians of every age to prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That tells us several things. First of all, it tells us that how we live is, direct, is directly related to who we are in Christ. How we live is directly related to who we are in Christ. Our faith, our new life in Christ is not just an acknowledgement of facts. It is a transformation of life. It affects why we live and how we live. And it is fundamentally different from who we were before we knew Christ. Secondly, therefore, it tells us that our behavior as Christians matters. What we do, how we do it, and by God's grace we are called to strive to do the right things at the right times in the right way for the sake of displaying the glory and goodness of our Lord to the world around us. How we live communicates something about the God we serve. And we're going to see that in a particular and specific way in our text this morning. Now Peter writes all of this, not to Christians who are living a life of ease, but to Christians who are facing various and increasing trials. In other words, the heat's getting turned up in the Roman Empire on Christians. It's getting harder and harder for them to live as Christians in their society on account of their faith and their Christian behavior in the world. In terms of their relationship to the non-Christian world in which these Christians live, Peter calls them elect exiles, that is chosen by God and following God as strangers in the world at large. And furthermore, he acknowledges that though they rejoice in the grace of God in their lives, they also have been grieved by various trials. They're struggling. They're suffering. Life is hard because they're Christians. And in chapter 2, Peter calls them to live their lives of godliness and hope in the midst of the world's mistreatment and rejection. So the big idea is this. As God's people, we have been born again to a new hope, to a new purpose, to a new lifestyle. We are no longer of this world. We have been set apart from this world unto God. We belong to Him. 
As such, we are called to live life, all of life, even life in this world, to his glory. Now that's going to make us look weird to the world. And as I've said many times before, as Christians, we're not called to act weird and to be weird kinds of people and to draw the world's ridicule for bad reasons, but living a godly life will make us look strange. And we need to be okay with that. And though it will make us seem strange to the world, and no doubt it will at times invite the world's hostility, we must remember our calling. We must remember the eternal inheritance that is promised to us by God himself, and we must remain steadfast in godly hope, even as strangers who are now traveling, as it were, through a foreign land. But Christians, this is not a call for us to leave the world and to disengage. In fact, we are called to engage the world in everyday interaction. This has an effect on how we go to work. This has an effect on how we live as neighbors in our neighborhoods. This has an effect on how we drive down the street and how we interact with the cashier as much as it does on how we interact with one another here at church. And as we engage, we do so as those who are driven by godly character and the fruit of the Spirit first and foremost, so that those around us might see our good works and in some way be led to see the goodness of God and perhaps even be led to faith because of our life, because of our example of the gospel. And so that means, as I've said, that our behavior matters. Not just what we think and say, but what we do. How we live in everyday, ordinary circumstances of life in this world. So in the latter portion of chapter 2, as we've seen, Peter instructs us in how to live this way. We called it honorable living. How to live honorably and godly in relation to civil authorities as Christians. How to live that way in the workplace with those who have authority over us. And now as we come to chapter 3, Peter brings, brings in two more areas of life where we are called to display gospel transformation and godly hope. Those two areas are the home and the church. Today, we're going to look at what steadfast hope and honorable living look like in the home. How we display honorable, godly character for the glory of God, and in particular in relationships between husbands and wives. <laughs> Now, if you're among us this morning and you're not married, please don't tune me out. All of Scripture is relevant for all of God's people, and there are lessons here for you too. Because what Peter's going to do is he's going to use this specific context of a husband and wife relationship in the home, but he's going to present to us universal truths and expectations of what godly character should look like. So though he's applying it to one specific area, there is a character portrait that he is painting for us that all of us need to learn from. So whether you've been married for a long time and have been a model of this already yourselves, or whether you are a young child who uh, marriage isn't even on your mind yet, pay attention because this has some good stuff for you to learn. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. If you'll follow along as I read. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If ever there was any doubt that the, that, about the Christian's strangeness in this world, living in obedience to these verses will certainly remove it. If I wanted to create a storm on Twitter today, all I would have to do is copy and paste these verses and send it out there and then watch the fireworks that follow. This passage is incredibly politically incorrect in our world today. Our world today fancies itself as enlightened, right? And what's the other E word that we keep hearing? Empowered. Especially in terms of manhood, womanhood, and the family. And yet, there is more confusion today than ever on these issues. Isn't it amazing? Women, you've been liberated. So much so that our society doesn't even know what a woman is anymore. And why it matters that they're different from men. And why it's a good thing. We don't get that anymore. Society has become altogether corrupt regarding God and God's word and gender and marriage and the family. Why? Because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. All of this is the, the effects of rejecting the knowledge of God. And now we have confusion everywhere else. And having closed itself off, to God's design and instructions, mankind is now left to desperately try to fill the void on his own. And mankind has made an utter mess of it, heavenly. But God's word, as always, shows us a better way, the best way. And while the world looks at passages like this and criticizes them and us, as a male-dominated, chauvinistic, patriarchal lunatic. We understand that passages like this are simply a matter of understanding and submitting to God's design from creation. And that it is good. And that it is for our good. And that it is for God's glory. The overarching principle that we see in this passage in the context of everything that we've said to this point, is this. Just as our behavior matters as Christians out there before a watching world, so our behavior as Christians matters in here, within the walls of our own homes. In fact, as one preacher put it, if our Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work at all. Peter is not giving us a theoretical treatise on religion. And he is not giving us a simple theological discourse in the world of academia. He is giving us indispensable, practical instruction for every Christian to follow in every aspect of their lives. He is showing us that true Christian faith transforms the most fundamental and the most minute areas of our lives that biblical doctrine has practical implications that leave no stone unturned in our lives. And so in these verses, it's as if Peter has entered into our living rooms and has sat down on our couch and he is discipling us now to live godly, honorable lives at home with one another. And he begins with a word to the wife. In verses 1 through 6. Now, he spends most of his time here talking to the wives. Isn't that funny? You're afraid to chuckle at that one, aren't you? Why does he spend so much time talking to the wives? Well, it's not because they are a bigger problem. It's because they have a bigger challenge. They have a more difficult situation. You see, in that day, many of the Christian wives within the church, were converted out of a pagan religion, and they were converted before their husbands. And so now they're faced with living in the context 
of a home where the husband does not know Christ and she's trying to live out her faith in that context. And that, in that society, would create a huge problem for the husband and for the wife. And so Peter is addressing what could be a major social problem for the family, what could be a major embarrassment for the husband. So one commentator explained it this way, when the wife accepted a new religion apart from her husband, that action generally produced acute problems for her. And Peter's primary concern here was not to improve the social status of wives, but to offer the Christian wife a strategy that would enable her to avoid violence, disarm the opposition of her unbelieving husband, and even lead him to Christ. And to these wives, young in the faith, striving to be faithful to the Lord, first and foremost, and to understand how to do so as, while living with their husbands, Peter gives some practical help and instruction. What would you expect him to say? Girl, get out. It's not what he says. In fact, what he says is strikingly different. First of all, he says in verses 1 and 2, be submissive and faithful. Be submissive and faithful. Look at the text. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's interesting, that word likewise is meant to tie these verses to what Peter has already said in chapter 2. He's carrying on the same principles from how we relate to government to how slaves relate to masters, to now how wives relate to their husbands. Now, please understand me. He is not comparing wives to slaves. Husbands, don't you dare hear that in what Peter is saying. That's not what he is saying. But he is taking the same concepts and commands, and now he is bringing them into the home. And he'll use that word likewise again for husbands in verse 7. And that's significant. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That has the idea, as it did in chapter 2, verse 13 and 18, of arranging oneself under or submitting to, to yourself to someone else. We find the same language used in one of the most popular wedding texts, Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 22, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You're never going to hear this kind of advice and instruction from the world. Not anymore. It is so contrary to the convictions and the agenda of society today. Why? Why does this even ruffle some of your feathers this morning? Why is this a hard passage to understand and to grasp? It's not really that hard to understand. It's hard to accept. Why? Because we have been conditioned to see in this command something like this. Shut up, woman. Know your role and get in the kitchen. You're welcome to chuckle at that if you want to. I know it's awkward. Is that not how we've been trained to understand something like this? But I would argue that that is not only grievously mean-spirited, but it is also woefully short of understanding what God is actually telling us in his word. This is not in any way language of inferiority of the woman. In fact, men, if you have any sense about you, you'll recognize that in most cases your wife is superior to you in many ways, right? This is an expression of the design of God from the very beginning that in the marriage of the man and the woman, who are both created in the image of God and who stand equal before God, there is to be an administrative structure as they both exercise dominion as God has commissioned us to do in Genesis 1-2. This does not mean that the woman does not have a voice in the home. This does not mean that the woman cannot be strong or successful even in endeavors outside the home. And it does not mean that the woman is to be a doormat under the feet of her husband. That is not what we are getting at here. 
And frankly, it doesn't even mean that the idea of submission is only the responsibility of the woman. Even in Ephesians chapter 5, when you look at not at verse 22, but at verse 21, we're all told to submit to one another. And on that basis, he applies these principles to marriage. There is a certain mutual submission that God has directed in the home and in our relationships, though they express themselves differently according to God's design. You say, I don't, how does that work? What, what, what do you mean? Well, we understand this in American politics, don't we? That the people supposedly that we put in leadership over us are just one of us. They're not superior to us. They're elected for a time to do a service, right? So while they might be in leadership over us, we're all together. That was part of what the founding fathers had in mind by not putting lofty titles on office president of the United States, right? There's an even better illustration of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, which, where Paul says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, we understand that Jesus Christ, the Son, is in a way submitted to the will of the Father, right? And yet we also understand that He and the Father are one and are co-equal. And Paul directly uses that as an illustration of how the husband is the head of the wife. So this call for wives to submit themselves to their husbands is not demeaning to the woman. It is actually a good thing because it is according to the good design and function of God's creation that he has intended from the very beginning. Now here, there's something amazing in this text. This call to submission has a specific purpose that Peter highlights here. And he explains it in the context of living a godly life before a watching world. Look at the rest of verses 1 and 2. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that, that word there, the first one is referring to obeying the word of God. Okay? They're not submitted to the word of God. They're not following the gospel. It, 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 the context is these are unregenerate men. But when it says that they may be one without a word, that's not talking about them being able to be one without the word of God. Right? That doesn't happen. Right? It's talking about they might be one even without the wife having to say a word. One preacher called this the silent preaching of a lovely life. Peter is not talking here about Christian husbands who have blind spots. He is talking about unbelieving husbands who reject the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And it would be, it would be easy and it would be tempting and natural for these newly converted Christian wives to wonder if they're supposed to leave their non-Christian husbands. After all, he doesn't belong to Christ and I do. Am I even supposed to stay here? And Peter is essentially telling them, no. Stay with them. Submit to them as godly wives. Live out your Christian life as, in, in, in godly character in front of them. Practically, don't nag them. Don't preach at them, because you know they're not going to listen to that anyway. And it could make them bitter against you. But be faithful. Be godly. And by your quiet and humble, that's without a word, by your quiet and humble, respectful and pure conduct, you may, by God's sovereign grace, lead them to faith in Christ after all. It's as if Peter is saying, trust me, women, your godly life speaks much louder to your husband than you know. You go and read Augustine's work on, called Confessions, and he, he gives a story of his own life and the testimony of his own mother in the life of his father, who was an unregenerate man until his deathbed. And it was this, the silent testimony of his mother all along that eventually led to the conversion of his father. And this is in large part 
what Peter is explaining here. This is part of the design for marriage, whether your spouse is a believer or not, to submit in this way. It is not permission for a Christian to go out and marry an unbeliever. That's not what Peter is getting at here, but it is godly and encouraging instruction for those who have found that they are married to an unbeliever. Don't just run away from that. If you can, stay faithful. Live according to God's design. Be submissive. Put God's character on display every day before them. This is a difficult concept to accept, isn't it, for some? We have some among us who live in the context of an unbelieving husband, and their faithful testimony has been more powerful than they will ever know. And we have no idea how there, there will be spiritual fruit born from that over time. And we pray to that end. We have others among us who have tried to do that and have not been able to stand. Does this mean that you have rejected God's design for marriage? No. It means that you have been put into a situation that is impossible for you. And Peter wants you also to know, as he tells, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, that if, that if you are in that kind of a situation, you can still live by this character and you are still safe in the hands of God. Be submissive and faithful, Peter says. Put this character on display even before unbelieving husbands. Now that brings us to verse 3, where we see another word that he gives to the women. Verse 3, he says, secondly, be modest. And if your feathers weren't ruffled already, now they are, because now you're thinking, oh great, now he's going to tell me how to dress. No, I'm not. And I don't think that's what Peter is getting at here either. Let's let the text speak. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Hear me, ladies. Verse 3 is not forbidding nice hairdos or wearing any jewelry. Some people have tried to teach that that is what it is doing. But if you're going to apply that, you have to consider what he says about clothing. It is not forbidding nice hairdos or wearing any jewelry any more than it is forbidding the wearing of clothing. Okay? Peter is teaching us a universal principle, which he will give in verse 4, in the context of a particular situation, which he acknowledges in verse 3. In that day, as it is in our own day, it was a common social trend to dress in ways that draw attention to the self, to give the impression of an elevated status, or even to accentuate one's body in order to express individualism or rebellion or selfish desire to please others. And often these things took place within the context of worship. So now we understand a little bit more about how the, the mindset behind this works, right? Drawing attention to oneself, trying to give the, the impression that we are in an elevated status. Well, that happens today, right? Trying to draw attention to ourselves by riskiness. That happens today. Frankly, men, don't tune out here because we can be prone to this too. But Peter's speaking specifically to the, to the women. And there is a, a unique pressure there. Peter is teaching here that the true measure of beauty is not in the outward image. Not that. I feel like I feel like a lot of women need to hear that today. And I'm a guy, so I don't really I can't get inside your heads. But I mean, is that true? At least for some, you need to be reminded. The true measure of beauty is not in the outward image. And Christian women ought not to be preoccupied with that outward image. Yes, it is good for men and women alike to care for our bodies. And we ought to. To care for our health and our fitness. And even to dress well if we can. After all, 
carelessly letting ourselves go is also a form of immodesty. But Peter's point here is that these things are not what we are to be known for or preoccupied with or identified by. Remember, as Christians, those who are holy, who are set apart unto God and who are living according to his character, we are not to be overly driven by or distracted by the trends and values and pressures of this world. In other words, don't be materialistic. Don't be preoccupied with physical features. Don't buy into the world's vain and superficial and frankly unrealistic view of beauty. There is something better. There is something richer. There is something more worthy of your time. There is something far more beautiful and far more attractive than that. And it belongs to all Christian women. I don't care what your body type, I don't care your hair color, I don't care your age, it doesn't matter. This beauty can belong to all Christian women. And that brings us to verses 4 and 5 where Peter says, thirdly, be preoccupied with godliness. Look at the text, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Here's the universal principle. It has to do with the hidden person of the heart. That is the character of a woman more than anything else. And it looks like this, a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, that is not saying that a woman can never speak or that a woman can't be strong, or that a woman can't stand up. And it certainly does not mean that a woman is to be a doormat or is to be subject to the abuse of her husband without ever seeking help. Right? This is where some of you who have been in a difficult situation and have had to get out of it, though you tried to be submissive, are, are to find comfort. We saw this principle. We are to submit ourselves to our civil government, right? But there comes a point where we do have to stand up and do what is right. Where we might have to disobey. The same principle is at, is at work here. This is not saying that a woman can't stand up. This is not saying that a woman can't speak or be strong. In fact, we find a strong, assertive, and successful woman praised for those character traits in Proverbs 31. Don't we? What Peter is describing here is the idea of humility meekness, patient submissiveness, and calmness of spirit, not being aggressive, harsh, overbearing, impatient, or domineering. You say, I can be those things and still be strong, still be successful? Yes, you can. You know how I know? Because those character traits mark the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. He submitted himself. He humbled himself to the point of death. And when he was falsely accused, he did not revile in return. That's what Peter said, talking about Isaiah 53 and then bringing it into 1 Peter 2. Jesus was gentle and meek. Anybody willing to say Jesus was not strong? See, this isn't saying, woman, shut up and get behind your husband. This is saying, here is how to live according to how God has made you. Here is how to live according to godly character within the context of even a difficult situation in your own home. This, not only does this gentle and quiet spirit help a godly Christian husband better fulfill his responsibility in the home, but it also models Christ's likeness toward an unbelieving husband and becomes the basis for modeling the gospel before him. Now, ladies, I know this is not an easy task. No one's going to give me an amen on that one. 
Now you're afraid to. No, no, come on. I know this isn't easy. Ever since Genesis 3, it has not been an easy task for women. I know that having a gentle and quiet spirit can be very difficult with a husband in the house. I know that you can fake it for a while, but not forever. This is something that only God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit can produce in you. This is nothing short of being renewed in the spirit of your minds by God's grace and power alone. That is why he says that this is a precious thing to God. It is evidence of his grace in your life. And that is why Peter describes it in verse 5 as a characteristic of holy women who hoped in God. This is not the kind of spirit that the world wants you to embrace. In fact, the world calls it oppression. But it is the character of holy women who hope in God. That is, women who love the Lord and who are preoccupied with godliness. And this, Peter says, is imperishable beauty. And though it is ridiculed and despised by the world, it is very precious in God's sight, Peter says. Ladies, this is the character you must pursue. Strive to be known as a woman of true beauty. The beauty of godly character above all else. And men, husbands, look for this. Praise this in your wives. Encourage this and help them to produce this. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But one other thing that Peter says to the wives in verses 5 and 6, a fourth word that he says is follow godly examples. Follow godly examples. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This godly, humble, submissive, faithful character, Peter says, has marked godly women of all generations. He holds them up as examples and says, follow them. He first mentions holy women generally who exemplify this character. You can look in Scripture and find them. If you want to find an example of this, I commend to you the story of Ruth. And Esther, come into the New Testament and look at Mary and others in the early church. But then Peter gets specific when he mentions Sarah. And he mentions one specific detail. This is interesting to me. He mentions one specific detail in Sarah's life that exemplifies what he's talking about here. And what is it? She called him Lord. Now, don't read more into that than is there. Okay? It's a term of respect and honor. It was a common term of respect and honor. But what is significant is that the only place in Scripture where we find Sarah calling him Lord is in Genesis 18, verse 12. And she said it under her breath. In her own thoughts and in her own prayer. She didn't say it to him. What does that tell us? What's significant about that? That tells us that calling him Lord, this respect, was not an outward show. It was the inward disposition of her heart. She wanted to honor him as much as she could. In other words, Sarah exemplifies submission and faithfulness and modesty and godliness. And that is what godly character and steadfast hope look like. And that's what they look like in all of those who are the children of Sarah, who was married to Abraham. And all the children of Abraham and Sarah are who? Us. This is Christian character. This is distinctly Christian character. Now, this can be unnerving for a godly wife, can't it? especially if she's living with an unbelieving husband. It can be a fearful thing in light of the world's backward values and the sinfulness of your own husbands. But your hope is where? It's holy women who hoped in God. He is your ultimate father. He is your God. He is your hope. 
And when He is your hope, you don't have to fear. You can, as commanded, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as those who hope in God alone. Now I want to say one more word about following godly examples. Um, that might sound like a bit of a stretch. But Peter is holding up examples for godly women to follow. And I want to hold up a passage that explains that a little bit further and, and bring it into our current context. In Titus chapter 2, we read this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then Peter, or, or Paul specifically says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to, slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good and to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word, word of God may not be reviled. Peter is holding up biblical examples of women for the modern day woman to follow. He's holding up Sarah and saying, follow that example. But Paul here is taking that principle even a little bit further, and he's saying within a church, women, you ought to have an example to look to, and you ought to be looking to set an example for somebody else. Younger women, women who are aspiring to be married or newly married, you have a godly example that you're looking to, somebody who's able to speak into your life. Older women, ladies who've been around and, and experience these things longer, who, who have been married a longer time, are you looking to take what God has taught you and, and help a younger lady learn and follow this example? Are you setting an example? Ladies, it's okay to seek that. It's okay to ask for it. In, in fact, I would encourage you to do that. Because what Peter has called you to do might sound simple, but I know it's not easy. You know it's not easy. But there are examples who can help. Seek them out. Ladies, be willing to be sought out. And let's, as a church, encourage one another to produce this character in our lives by God's grace. Now, in verse 7, Peter gives a word to the husbands. And men, don't think you're getting off easy because he only has one verse for you. Our calling is a high and a serious calling as husbands. And Peter keeps it short because we're slow. But what he says is rich and significant. Look at the text. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's a full-time job right there, guys. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you know as well as I do, that's a full-time job. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, he says, likewise, tying this to his talk of submission. What does this attitude and spirit of submission look like for the husband as the teacher, and, or, or excuse me, as the leader of his home? In verse 7, Peter is addressing Christian husbands now in the church. And he gives three ways that we are to demonstrate godly submission to the Lord in the leadership of our homes and in relationship to our wives. The first thing he says, be considerate. Now, guys, listen, that is, he's not saying pick up after yourself. Take the trash out. Those are good things to do, and they're part of being considerate. But what Peter is saying here is much richer than that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, dwelling together according to knowledge. What does that mean? What does that look like? It has two aspects in my view. First, it has to do with the knowledge of God and the gospel that you have received in Jesus Christ. In other words, dwell with your wife, make your home with her, Build your home on this according to your renewed mind and your life with Christ. Be a distinctly Christian husband and leader in your home. Guys, pray. Read your Bible. 
do it in front of your family. Bring them alongside yourself and do it together. Second, it has to do with the knowledge of your wife. Dwelling with her in knowledge means living with a knowledge of her as a person, as God has made her to be, and according to God's design and call on her life that we have just seen in verses 1 through 6. As her submission enables you to be a better husband in your home, so your treatment of her ought to make it easier for her to be a godly wife in your home. Husbands, do you have any idea how hard it is for your wife to live verses 1 through 6 in today's world? Help her. Encourage her. Lead her. Don't stand in the way and suppress her from what God has called her to be. Encourage her. Support her. Equip her. Help her. Be considerate of who you are and what your role is. Be considerate of what God has called her to be. The second thing we see is this. Show honor. Be considerate. Show honor. Peter goes on to say, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Please do not get carried away with any thought that you are strong and she is weak. He said weaker vessel. That's a comparative term. Compared to who? You. Again, the world looks at this and takes great offense. We could spend a lot of time here talking about cultural issues regarding genders, but that's not the point. Once again, this is not in any way saying that women are inferior to men. It's not talking about mental capacity or even emotional capacity. When, Paul, when Peter says the weaker vessel, he is simply reminding the husbands that generally speaking, the women are not as physically strong as the men. And as a result, that leaves them vulnerable in a way that the men generally aren't. This doesn't mean that women are helpless. It doesn't mean that women can't make their way through life on their own if they need to. No, they can. That's, it's not saying that they're not capable of doing great things. Peter's point here is that husbands ought not to resent their wives for these things. They are not to grow impatient with their wives for it, but they are to honor them in it. The idea here is to treat them as precious, to treasure them, to protect them. And a basketball coach in, in uh, high school who was intent on, on teaching us how to be godly men and what manhood was. And he, and he kept telling us that when it comes to women, they are like fine china. You treat them carefully because they are valuable. That's been the God-given design for husbands from the beginning. I want us to consider another aspect of this, just by way of application. One other aspect of the women being a weaker vessel. I've seen it suggested in many places now. Could it also be that another reason why she is the weaker vessel is that she is in a vulnerable position because she has submitted herself to you? Do you take that into account? By faith in Christ, she is following you. What a responsibility, man. Isn't it? Don't exploit her. Don't demean her. Don't take advantage of her. Don't be bitter against her or resent her. Don't wear her down. Men, don't abdicate your role as a leader of the because that's a dishonor to your wife. Don't make your wife step in and do your job for you. Don't hide in the man cave while she bears the burdens of the home. Don't make her bear the responsibility for keeping the home. Don't make her bear alone the responsibility of disciplining the children. Be engaged. Be attentive. Be active in your home. Step up, love her, lead her, care for her, sacrifice yourself, body and soul for her. That is what you are called to do. And finally, 
we see this. Embrace companionship. Peter says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Some have said this refers to her equal standing with you in the gospel as Christians. Others have said it refers to companionship and the grace of, of marriage life together. I don't see any reason why it can't be both. Remember that your wife is created in God's image and is precious to him just as you are. Remember that your marriage is a gift of God to be enjoyed. But remember that your marriage and your life together has a purpose to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and to make him known in the world around us by a distinctively godly and holy life together. And Peter actually finishes with this challenge, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, our relationship with God is directly connected to our relationship with our wives. You don't treat them according to the way God called you to treat them. You don't step up and be the husband God's called you to be. Don't expect God to hear your prayer. Why? Because our relationship with God is connected to this. I'm not saying that by getting married we become Christians. No, I'm saying that by sinning in this way, we are broken off from fellowship with our Lord. But notice that this is the purpose for Peter's instruction here. His goal is not primarily a happy marriage. His goal is for us to draw near to God and to live for Him and to image Him in the world around us. So, Christians, how are you doing in all of this? How are you doing here? This is not a seminar on helpful tips for a happy marriage. This is God's authoritative command for godly people. And even if you are not married, you find here a portrait of the kind of spirit you ought to have and the kind of character you must pursue as a Christian man or woman. So take heed. Pay attention. Follow what Peter is teaching us here. And these principles will spill over into our text for next time, which applies to all of us, regardless of our marital status. He's going to apply it more universally after giving specific instruction for the home. And so my prayer is that from all of this, we will have hearts devoted to godliness and lives marked by godly character in this way. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the practicality of your word. 